Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I'm your host, along with our co-host and my dad, Ronnie Nathan. Hey, Pops. Hey there. How you doing? I'm okay. You going to behave yourself today? <laughs> um, I thought the, the only reason I'm on this show is so I don't behave myself. Right, right. You mix it up a little bit. You put a little Jewish spice in there. Uh, and we're co-produced by my pal, Tristan Drew. Thank you, Tristan. By the way, if you like the show, hit that subscribe button, review us, follow us, uh, engage with us on all the different uh, social networks and stuff. We have a lot of exciting guests and, and topics. Uh, I think you'll enjoy the ride that we're going on. And without further ado, it is an honor to be joined today by Dr. Errol Southers. I first heard about Dr. Southers through Tara Setmeyer, a senior advisor to the Lincoln Project, who many of you might know. Uh, she was speaking about homegrown violent extremism and said flat out that if there is anyone to speak to speak on these topics, uh, to speak with about this critical issue, it is Dr. Errol Southers. And as I, as I dug into the professor's background, it is crystal clear why. Dr. Southers is a professor of the practice in national and homeland security, director of the Safe Communities Institute, SCI, and director of homegrown violent extremism studies at the Saul Price School of Public Policy at USC. He's also the director of international programs in the Department of Homeland Security, DHS, uh, National Center for Risk and Economic Analysis of Terrorism Events, at USC. He was, California, he was uh, Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger's Deputy Director for Critical Infrastructure of the California Office of Homeland Security and President Barack Obama's first nominee to head the TSA. That is quite a resume, Dr. Southers. What an honor to be with you. Thank you for joining us. How are you? Thank you. It's an honor to be here and, and I'm humbled. Um, believe me, I've had an incredible career thanks to some incredible parents and friends and family and it's an honor to serve my country and I, and I still do. I'm so glad you brought up your parents because I noticed that you, you've mentioned them in your acknowledgments in your book and other interviews I've heard. Uh, we do have something in common, by the way, from what I understand, we are both the children of educators who also grew up in Jersey. So where in New Jersey did you grow up? I grew up in Union County. I went to Scotch Plains Banwood High School. Okay. Uh, as we would say, exit, exit 136. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. When you're from Jersey, you know what exit you're off of. We were on exit 123, so not too far. Now, like I said, I've heard you in other interviews. Thank God for your mom and dad. Can you tell us a bit about your parents? Yeah, my, my parents have passed away, but they just were fantastic people. My dad, well, I always say this to people. We had, uh, before I even got to college, there were three graduate degrees between my parents. Uh, my mom, by the way, was the first African-American woman to graduate from the Rutgers School of Pharmacy. Oh wow! And she went on and got two master's degrees. My dad went on and got a master's degree. 
when all my friends got to play in the afternoon, I wound up getting more homework from them because even though they were supportive of athletics and other activities, um, they were convinced that the only way to a successful future was education. And so there you have it. Um, I went on to Brown University and and I was very fortunate to leave Brown debt free thanks to my parents who were very, very frugal in terms of saving for me when I grew up. Uh, my brother also went to Brown two years later and uh, I would not be where I am today if it were not for them prioritizing education and I will be internally grateful. How does a graduate from Brown become a cop? But in, with his, a major in biology. <laughs> it gets even better. Um, not only was I a graduate from Brown, I was a bio major, I was pre-med and went on to med school. Oh. So I left med school at the College of Medicine and Dentistry in New Jersey, what it was called at the time. I left there to come to LA. Uh, long story short, I was a competitive bodybuilder at the time as well. And so that's my affiliation with the governor who I've known for over 40 years. And I was in Santa Monica and lo and behold, uh, less than a year later, I'm in the police academy. Oh, wait a second. So I'm putting two and two together, we wouldn't have caught you in one of those uh, documentaries of, uh, what was it called, Pump and Iron? Because that was about that time, wasn't it? My training partner was in there, Eddie Giuliani. Okay. Um, I was not in that film at the time. I still lived in Jersey at the time. But um, I've known Arnold for over 40 years. I was bachelor party, wedding, saw him last month. Uh, he now has a center. He has a Schwarzenegger Institute at the Saul Price of School of Public Policy at USC, along with us. I see him quite frequently, and we've grown up together, and our families have grown up together, and we're still very close friends. How about that? Yeah, I was curious about that because I saw the bio uh, as a you know major as an undergrad. So it was the move to Santa Monica for the competitive bodybuilding that brought you out out west. You want to hear how bad it gets, and I tell this to my students who always think I have this. Jason Bourne career. And I always ask them, what are you willing to do to do what I do now? And they don't know where I'm going with it. I say, are you willing to be a dog catcher? And they look at me like with their head turned sideways. I left medical school, came to Los Angeles. My first job here was I was an animal control officer for the Santa Monica Police Department. AKA dog catcher. Wow. That's where I met these officers. Of course, two of them were bodybuilders. Um, We were all training in the same gym and they said, why do you want to do that when you could do this? 10 months later, I was in the police academy. Wow. Yeah. It looked like you had several jobs, even with the Santa Monica police. I did. I went there. Obviously I worked patrol. I was the first Santa Monica officer to be appointed to the police academy staff. So I was a drill instructor there as well. And I became a field training officer. Um, And it was in the academy that I met an officer who was a cadet who introduced me to her husband, who was an FBI agent. And that was four years later. I was a member of the crime impact team at Santa Monica. It was a robbery suppression team. And I left Santa Monica PD uh, when I got appointed to the bureau. Wow. I spent most of my career as a high school guidance counselor. When Corey was an infant, we uh, didn't have a lot of money. And I was in grad school and teaching middle school. And I got a hack license and drove in New York City yellow cab for five years whenever I wasn't teaching. And I learned more in a grunt 
blue collar job driving that cab that helped me counsel the people that I was working with inner city kids in New York City that I ever learned in grad school. And it gave me a perspective that my colleagues didn't have who had gone from college to teaching to counseling without any experience in working class life. And I'm wondering if you had that same experience. I did have that same experience. Well, first of all, Ron, let me just say this to you. My mom was a high school guidance counselor. God bless her. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, with all due respect, I grew up always appreciating what I had. And I kind of checked my ego at the door throughout my career. So here I was an Ivy League educated med school dropout who was a dog catcher. <laughs> You know, and then I became a police officer, which was somewhat intimidating to some of my colleagues in the department because they knew where Brown was. But I never, ever flew that flag or waved that banner. I was just one of the guys and I worked as hard as they did. And to your point, it gave me an appreciation for everything that I was ever able to do and accomplish afterwards because I met all kinds of people, obviously, as an animal control officer, and even more obviously as a police officer that I would have never met. It also was clear that at a very early point in your career, teaching and leadership became a part of almost every role that, that you took on. Do you think that's because you, because you had the parents that you did, or was it something that you were just drawn to? It's absolutely because of the parents that I had. My dad used to always say, listen, I don't care what you do in your life. If you become a sanitation worker, I want you to be the best sanitation worker. He said, if you become an educator, I want you to be the best educator. He says, I'm going to support you no matter what. And it was nothing. I probably beat myself up more. I wrestled through school. I was in a town in New Jersey called Scotch Plains Fanwood. I mean, we, 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 how should I say this? We build wrestlers there. We start wrestling at age five in that town. Eddie and I were both wrestlers, by the way. Okay. And <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I still remember a match that I lost when I was 16 years old because we had a nine year winning streak at my, my high school wow. and we lost that night. Um, nothing was more devastating for me than to feel like I had let my, my parents down. So when I didn't get an A, when I didn't win a match, when we lost a game, um, it was, it was, I was really tough on myself, but it was because I always wanted to be the best. And my parents never, ever felt like there was anything that could get in the way if I applied myself. So, you know, I often had to read two and three times to get it. I often had to do things several times to get it, but it never meant I couldn't get it. Mm. And so that's why I was able to probably go on and do some of the things that I did. When did they pass away? Did they see, get to see you earn your doctorate? Uh, both my parents got to see me earn my doctorate, which was really cool. Uh, my mom passed away a couple of years ago in 2018. My dad in 2013. They lived in Jersey when I lived here in, in Los Angeles and great relationship. Um, just extremely supportive. I will never forget when they both came to see me graduate from the FBI Academy in Quantico. Um, incredible moment. When I got my, my first graduate degree at USC, they were both there just always supportive. You know, I'm, I'm one of those kids. I'm very fortunate. I have to tell you that with all the things I tried in my life from sports to, you know, I went to the boy Scouts, became an Eagle Scout. 
my parents were always there. And I know people can't say that. And I don't take that for granted. They were, I can never remember in my life a time when my mom or dad weren't there to answer a question, to support me. They were always there. And, and I, I'm so humbled and so blessed that I had that kind of support going through my entire life until a few years ago when they passed away. So I don't, I always talk about them for that very reason. Good, good. Yeah, well, we certainly share that in common, but don't tell my dad I said that. I, I don't want him to get too big of a head. Uh, no, seriously, they were at every performance and my dad came to every piano lesson and every wrestling match and yeah. Um, but you're gonna have to live a really long time, Pops, to see you know to see me earn a doctorate. I, I don't know if that's gonna happen this century. Uh, so uh, there's so much to talk about here, Dr. Southers. Uh, so let's dive right in. In your book, Homegrown Violent Extremism, you discuss, among so much, uh, you discuss the DHS assessment of right-wing extremism's findings, and that it had to be reworked at least in terms of its messaging because of political considerations. You cite other instances that uh, the presentation of facts uncovered in similar assessments are slanted due to such considerations. So to what extent does this go on? Well, the most important part of that 2009 assessment by the Department of Homeland Security's Intelligence and Analysis Unit was the fact that they were on target. It was labeled right-wing extremism. And I wish I could have talked to Secretary Napolitano before she released it because I would have told her, although accurate, that title was going to be dead on arrival, and it was. Mm. What was really interesting about that assessment was that it talked about the anticipated increase in right-wing extremism, particularly as it related to recruitment and radicalization, specifically targeting returning veterans, United States veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan because of their skill sets. That report was panned, she pulled it, she made a public apology to veterans, Speaker Boehner went crazy over it. The unit was disbanded and then things started happening. That was 2009, I believe it was a year to two years later that a group that was identified in the report called Sovereign Citizens, who are largely a movement that doesn't believe the United States government is legitimate. They go by a number of different names. Some of them call themselves the freedom movement. They killed several police officers a year later, West Memphis, Arkansas, and some other places. And then we saw the uptick of right-wing extremist recruitment. And so the report, even to this day, and their author's name is Daryl Johnson. He's been on TV several times, including 60 Minutes. That unit did an incredible job of forecasting what we would see, and as we see with what just happened recently, they were right on target. Yeah, I was gonna ask you about that. To what degree do you attribute some of the failures of January 6th to you know, what, what that report was, was laying out and, and the fact that we have to take into consideration messaging or, or how it's positioned or who it might piss off based on sim simply presenting facts? America has lived in a period of denial for going on probably, I'm going to talk about homegrown violent extremism for at least three to four decades. You know, even though Timothy McVeigh bombed the Murrah building in 1995, he was seen as a one-off, quote unquote, lone wolf. People don't realize that Timothy McVeigh had many of his views shaped by a Christian identity right-wing extremist group called the, the, sword, uh, the Covenant, the Sword, the Arm of the Lord, CSA. 
What people don't know is that CSA surveilled the Murrah building in 1983, 12 years before Timothy McVeigh bombed it. Wow. Of course, he followed to the letter the Turner Diaries, written by, written by Dr. William Pierce under his pseudonym of Andrew McDonald. But the point is that that movement was already building itself back in the 80s. You know, I was in the FBI in the 80s. We had compound battles at Whidbey Island, Ruby Ridge, Waco. And we understood the threat then. But lo and behold, when 9-11 happens, the entire world pivoted. And for good reason. And so we became all about jihadists and Islamists and focused on that, what I call that other threat, that international threat, like the entire world, taking our eye off the ball. And what's really interesting is if you go deeper, the day of the 9-11 attack, we saw some things posted on the internet. Images of the towers getting hit by the plane in flames, pronouncements like, may the world burn, death to his enemies. We're thinking it's bin Laden. We're thinking it's some Al-Qaeda affiliate. It was a guy named August Kreese, who's a grand dragon in the Klan in Pennsylvania. Wow. He reaches out to Ayman al-Zawahiri, who at the time is number two in Al-Qaeda, and says, join us. The cells are here in place. We have the same enemy. The Ku Klux Klan tried to partner with Al-Qaeda. Wow. That's not a story that I've heard. Is that, how has that not been uh, shared more widely? It is one of many stories of the right-wing extremist movement in the United States and their anti-government stance that's not often told because they want to be perceived as patriots and supportive of the United States when in fact, that's not always true. Right. How would you assess the threat of domestic terrorism from the left? I would say that this is a cycle. So as we know, in the 70s, we had an incredible uptick from the left, whether underground, Students for a Democratic Society, Black Panther Party. Um, what's really interesting about that, Ron, and I'm glad you asked, is that the left and the right tend to ebb and flow. What's even more interesting is that as if you look at the right as it relates to anti-government movements, they ebb and flow with Democratic and Republican administrations. So we are much, how, how should I say this? There are far fewer incidents of domestic terrorism now than there were in the 70s when we had the left. My students are always amazed when I try to tell them, you know, they bombed FBI buildings. They bombed federal buildings in the 70s. And he goes, and they ask me, when? I go, have you ever heard of the weathermen? And they'll say no. Mm -hmm. So we spend a lot of time talking about the weather underground, Students for a Democratic Society, Black Panther Party, and all those movements so they understand. I try to make sure we have a balance. I would say today, you know, I, I know that there's this incredible reflex to want to play whataboutism when it comes to anti-fascists uh, and groups like that. Uh, the, the problem with that is for people who do it, I believe we've got one death attributed to the anti-fascist or the Antifa movement, whereas, as you know, in the last decade, 76% of the domestic violence homicides have been perpetuated by the right wing. 
In fact, two years ago in 2018, all 52 deaths were perpetuated by the right wing. But there's always this, this knee-jerk reaction to want to say, well, what about them? So we have seen cycles of left and right. Um, and now we are clearly, for the last decade, in the right in terms of the swing. Um, but it was we had a lot more terrorism globally in the 70s than we even have now. Yeah, in the conclusion to your to your book, you say the threat of homegrown violent extremism, HVE, and the radicalization pathway are not limited to any one group or ideology. It is a cross-cutting phenomenon that has the potential to impact all segments of our society. So I'm curious, what's worse about domestic terrorists? It seems like maybe it's unique to right now, but they're the ability to sway and persuade otherwise, I don't, I don't know what the right word is for it, but but normal people by hijacking words like freedom and liberty and patriot um, and, and even uh, uh, Christian sounding vocabulary. So it just seems, maybe I'm wrong that it, it's, uh, it seems worse now because you've been studying all different periods, uh, but that, that's something that really jumped out at me. That's a great question. I mean, well, let me just give you an example and then we'll talk about it. You know, many people remember the Cernayev brothers from the Boston Marathon bombings, which I am honored to have been one of the persons who testified as an expert that day at the congressional hearing. What I wanted to point out to the congressional committee that day were two things. Number one, that this was not the end. It was the beginning of what we would see in terms of homegrowns. Number two, Tamerlan Cernayev, the older brother who got killed. Yes, he was a jihadist. He was also a neo-Nazi Holocaust denier. Wow which we found out after doing a search warrant on his personal belongings and his property. So the challenge into your question, Corey, about today, it's almost like people have a menu and they check off all the extremist ideologies that work for them. So I'm often asked, for example, you know, why do you have a guy like Enrique Terrio, who's a Cuban immigrant, who's the head of the Proud Boys? Well, there's a whole Hispanic Latinx community that are white supremacists. Yeah. So this is, we, we have to get away from thinking that it's some monolithic way of thinking that they only have one line of thought. You know, and there's three elements that you need to be radicalized. You've got an alienated individual, so someone who's apart from the mainstream. And this is not associated with mental illness. This is just someone who's decided that they're not part of the mainstream. They're somewhat victimized. Um, there's a sense of not belonging. Then there's a legitimizing ideology, which could be almost anything, or combination of what I call hybrid ideologies. Then that third element is the one that we get to influence, that enabling community, because these folks don't exist in a vacuum. So when you see people going online today, whereas you may have a belief, Corey, and your dad doesn't agree with you, you can go online and find a thousand people in five minutes that think you're absolutely correct. Right. So it's not hard today for these people to reach out, get into what I call groupthink in terms of being absolutely on target with regards to who the enemies are, who their friends are. And this is this movement, by the way, in terms of radicalization, which whether it's on the left or the right, there is no gray area. It's what I call absolutism. You're either for them or against them. You're either a follower or believer, or you're not. So that's why it's so difficult today to have discussions with people who embrace these 
extreme ideologies because there's no middle ground. If you don't agree with them, you disagree and there's no need to have a conversation. That was another one of the things that really jumped out at me in the book. You talk about uh, leaders, uh, leadership and, and the role of leadership and radicalization. One of the things you said is extremist characteristics like intolerance, superiority, otherism, moral absolutes, generalizations, lacking foundation, doomsday scenarios, conspiracy theories and code speak. And by the way, for our listeners, this was written in 2013. This wasn't written in the Trump era. Uh, but it really sounds eerily familiar, not just I, I mean, what, what what's scary is that you turn on certain radio shows now and and it re- it's it's all over the radio or XM, Sirius XM. So that that some of that really jumped out at me. Well, thank you. And, and you know, I will say this. I don't know if I was ahead of the curve or if I just was able to do some really solid sound research. I wanted to present a text that gave people the spectrum of what homegrown violent extremism would be and its foundations without sounding biased one way or the other. I really approached it academically. And fortunately it turned out very well. I didn't know it would turn into an entire studies program at USC, but it has. And um, it's funny, I just had a conversation not more than an hour ago with my wife going, you gotta finish your second book. And so. Well, I, I was curious, you, you, uh, you cited, you give a breakdown of numerous hate groups and categories such as racial, religious, and issue-oriented ideologies. I was curious what some of the groups that have emerged in recent months and years that you'd add to your assessment now. Well, what I would do, obviously you've got, you, you know, you've got groups like Boogaloo Boys and Proud Boys uh, um, and groups like that. What I would add to that are some of the anti-government groups who weren't as, let's just say, violently oriented as they are now. You know, the Oath Keepers years ago would have you believe that they were pro-government and then they weren't, um, I take that back. Those three percenters would have you believe they were pro-government because you know they, they all operate under this notion that only 3% of the People who lived in the colonies fought in, this, in the revolution. I've seen three percenters on video. I show a video in my class of a three percenter who talks about how they support the Constitution in the United States. Then you'll find three percenters who don't say that. So what I would add to that are the number of people out there that, again, checking off the boxes for the ideologies that work for them, don't ever put them under an umbrella in terms of what they might believe. They could be very different. You have, by the way, the Proud Boys had a whole faction that accepted people like Enrique Terrio. Then you had another Proud Boys faction that said, no, we are white supremacists and white nationalists and we don't want them in our organization. So you have to be really careful about painting a, these groups with a broad brush because depending on which faction you're talking to could be very different. I came of age in the 60s and 70s, um, I had friends who were in the weather ground and SDS and all that stuff. Um, what scares me today is that back then, those groups were never identified or identified themselves as part of mainstream culture. They were never normalized. Whereas and, you know, I, I don't want to blame everything on Donald Trump because he's right. a symptom as much as a cause. But in the last five years, 
these groups have become normalized. We have them in the House of Representatives. We look at them and 75% of Republicans view them as patriots. Mm -hmm. And when those kinds of extreme ideologies become normalized and are perceived as within the acceptable range of beliefs that a patriotic American can hold dear, it seems to me that we're on a very dangerous road. Well, Ron, you are absolutely correct. And let me tell you some things that Trump did that may appear to be off the radar, but to people like me screamed at what was going on. He comes along at a time when he decides to run for president, when these extremist organizations that I follow were understanding that we would, they would, we would have a minority majority country by 2050. Right. So a decade ago, as I'm visiting their website, some of them even have elapsed clocks on there telling them this is how many years they have left to do something about it. By the time he runs, it's been recalculated to 2045. Therein lies the reason that we don't want to have a census done because we don't really want to know. So you descend the escalator in New York, and what's the first thing you decide to run on? Anti-immigration. Right. What's the slogan that you use? America first. Well, what a coincidence that that was a centennial slogan for the Ku Klux Klan. So the people who understand this and know this. And the German Bund in America. Right. So the jog whistle is loud. These folks now understand we have an ally in the White House. And so I'm going to use this analogy because I think it's kind of interesting. Al-Qaeda, when it was at its heyday, was off the grid, covert, didn't know how they operated, didn't know how to contact them, didn't know how to join didn't really become successful in terms of what they wanted to establish in the way of a caliphate. Then along comes ISIS, which by the way, was established by Abu Musabo Zarqawi, who used to be in Al-Qaeda. Al they flipped the script, website, videos, marketing strategy, online magazine, here's how you join us, come to Turkey, we'll get you your uniforms. They had land, they paid their fighters, they went public. So when I look at what's happening now, I call it mirroring. I see these right-wing American organizations doing the same thing that the jihadists did in terms of capitalizing on exposure and marketing. Mm. There's no downside now because we all are talking about free speech, which we, don't, we can have a whole other conversation about free speech in the Second Amendment and what it really means, what they think it means. But they're capitalizing now on the ability to market. And I can say, I don't like Jews. I don't like immigrants. I don't like blacks. Join me. And it's working because they got that message from the White House and from the president himself. So he capitalized on many, you know, with all due respect, when, what, when many of my colleagues, and I, I'm in a group, as you know, called Life After Hate, and it was formed by largely former neo-Nazis and white nationalists. And they used to tell me, I said, Errol, we, we reached a point in America, we had to trade boots for suits. We wanted to be able to go to work and live and work amongst these people with them not knowing what we were really like. That's all been turned around now in the last four years. You can fly your flag with the swastika in front of your house and dare someone to say something about it. You could call someone the N-word and say, if you can use that word, why can't I? It's all been turned around. And so you're, to your point, Ron, it's become very dangerous because in a country where hate speech is constitutionally protected, 
unlike some other countries in the world, we are now on the precipice and came dangerously close to the overthrow of our government because people believe now they can do this. And they have a right to have access to weapons. And let me, and you know why we don't have open carry in California, right? Well, I, I know because I've been listening to your interviews. Dad, do you, do you know the, uh, this story? I have no idea. So the long story short, and behind this banner in my office is a photograph of Bobby Seale, who I got to meet the day he walked into the California State Capitol in Sacramento. Black Panthers, got it. So the Black Panthers, when they established, for your, for your listeners, the Black Panthers, when they established themselves, were called the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense because of police brutality. They did their homework in California, specifically where you could open carry a rifle or a shotgun. So what they would do is show up on police traffic stops, tell the motorists, we're here to make sure nothing happens to you. And four or five guys are standing there in black leather jackets and berets with shotguns and rifles. Police department said, that's not gonna work. They get together, the FBI declares the Black Panther Party a national security threat. Assembly member Mulford gets together with Governor Reagan. They decide to write up the Mulford Act. Bobby Seale is the co-founder of the Panthers. He goes to the state capitol that day to fight against it. The Mulford Act passed in one afternoon, endorsed by the NRA. Wow. And that is why we don't have open carry in California. It's not because we're progressive. It's because when the Black Panthers got weapons, people decided we've had enough. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I was I was really curious. I had a hypothesis, and you might have the numbers on this, which that's how science goes. You you have a hypothesis, you look at the numbers, your hypothesis was wrong, you adjust. So here's here's sort of a, a question slash hypothesis. You cite in in the book again. It's for those who are interested in this. It was just a a, a treasure trove of of information and scary but valuable. You know, information is good. There's a stati- statistic that President Obama became the target of more than 30 death threats a day, which was a 400% increase from about 3,000 a year during the George W. Bush administration. So just out of curiosity, do you know what that number was during Trump's tenure? I don't know what it was, but I can tell you this, as I mentioned previously, armed militias and anti-government groups peaked during Clinton, went down, went during George W. Bush, reached a whole new high under Obama. And what's interesting is during the Trump years, they started to decrease and then they picked up again. Mm. So I'm going to guess not having any data that the threat level to him was probably nowhere near his predecessors as it relates to um, secret service and those kinds of issues. But I don't know the numbers. Yeah. I'd I'd be interested to find that out. So, I have a lot of questions regarding the attack on the Capitol. What have you observed and what would you say about revelations that the attack on the Capitol was at least partially an inside job and the degree to which law enforcement officers from around the country were either sympathetic to or even participated in in the attack? Well, Corey, that's a great question. So let's go back to 2006 when the FBI put out a report on the infiltration of law enforcement and the military by white supremacist groups, which was largely ignored, heavily redacted, presented to Congress and went away. 2009, as we already talked about, the 2009 report from DHS from the Intelligence and Analysis Unit talking about the same thing. Again, 
trying to target military people, but again, people with skill sets. And then just before, just after the, between the election and the attempt to certify the electoral college on January 6th, that report from 2006 emerged again with regards to how these ranks of local law enforcement had been infiltrated. So I will say this, if nothing else, you did not have to have a top secret clearance to understand the intelligence that was going around the threat that would happen to be present that day at the Capitol. We all knew it. It's almost like before Charlottesville in 2017, I was at a conference in New Orleans three days before we all knew what was gonna happen that weekend. And I announced very carefully, I hope no one gets killed this weekend. And Heather Heyer got run over by a car. We all knew on January 6th what was going to happen. Even though you're in a district where carrying an open, an open, openly carrying a weapon is against the law. God only knows how many guns were there that day. But to your point, the fact that law enforcement did not have the presence or the, let's just say even the presence of mind to work with the Department of Homeland Security to declare that a national security special event, an NSSE, is certainly gonna come out if they ever put together this commission to look at it. That's a huge question. The intelligence was overwhelming. For months, people were saying, go to the Capitol, bring your weapons, we're gonna fight. It was being advertised as Independence Day. There was no way you couldn't know this. You, it, and I'm, with all due respect to my colleagues in law enforcement, there is no way you could not have seen this happening. The fact that they had the posture, meaning the Capitol Police that day, and I had someone interview me recently, and he used a very interesting term. He said, I'm wondering if there was a white innocence that was presumed by this crowd. And I said, that's a very interesting way to describe it. When you look at the posture that they had to protect the Lincoln Monument during the summer social unrest for George Floyd, and the lack of posture you had for the January 6th Electoral College certification, it's very telling. Then we won't even get into the selfies being taken, the officers ushering people into the building. That's a whole other conversation. I will say that what's really even more disturbing on the number of off-duty personnel from around the country that were there. And the first agency, to my knowledge, that asked their people, were you there and what did you do? Because we're going to be working with the FBI, was the New York Fire Department. Since then, most major departments across the country have asked their people, were you there? You need to tell us before the FBI tells us. So you ask a very interesting question. It is going to come out with regards to the level of complicity. What's even more interesting, though, Corey, are the reports of surveillance or reconnaissance missions the days before by tours given by members of the House. Because I will say, and I won't say on camera who, but there are at least two members of Congress who have offices that are unlabeled that the people who broke in went to to see if they were there. Yeah, I've heard reports about that. I want to make a note and then dad, it looks like you have a question for our listeners. Dr. Southers is not talking from a Monday morning quarterback perspective. If you if, if this information is important to you, do yourself a favor, uh, give yourself a gift and look up 
uh, Dr. Errol Southers. I've heard you in interviews. Um, not what's just the name, what's the name of his book, Corey? Because you've referred to it a number of times, and it's called Home, "Homegrown Violent Extremism," and it's yeah, I mean it's it's packed with really valuable information. So going back to 2013 and prior to that, but I heard you in interviews even in 2019, not just October of 2020, but going back to 2019, where some of the possibilities that you describe are just pinpoint accurate to what ultimately happened on January 6th and and what's been unfolding uh, subsequently. Uh, it looked like you had a, a question, Dad. I don't know if it's a question. It's a concern. It's only tangentially related to security. One of the things that I find most troubling, you refer to the security at the Lincoln Memorial the day of the George Floyd demonstrations versus the security that was available on January 6th. Um, I've discussed this with friends of mine, white conservative friends, Republican voting friends, Trump supporting friends. And they get absolutely apoplectic when I point that out. And the source of their anger is that I'm back on the race card again. I've often talked about white privilege with friends. I mean, no offense to anyone listening or to you, Dr. Southers, but if if I was up in heaven as a soul and God said, would you like to be white or black? I'd say, let me think about that for a second. I think I'll take white, you know, for a whole host of reasons. And when I say that to people, they go ballistic. And I had a fellow, a wonderful young man, uh, tell me that it's exactly that attitude, my attitude, that explains why white non-college educated people voted for Trump because people like me, elitists, don't understand when I say things like that, I'm discriminating against them. That's very interesting. I'm smiling because I'm a huge Chris Rock fan. And, and Chris did a skit once where he said, there's not a white person in the world who wants to be me and I'm rich. <laughs> but, but to your point, I mean, you are absolutely on target. You are having the discussion that many people don't want to have. And, you know, with all due respect to these ideologies out there, it comes down most often to an issue of race. And by that, I also include a close alignment with anti-Semitism because they're very closely aligned. So, I mean, I want to go back to, to your point. When we talk about the protests over the summer, again, I'm a data person, I'm a, I'm a professor. There was a study done by the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard by a professor named Erica Chenoweth. They looked at 7,305 protests of millions of people between May and June of last summer. 1% of the police were injured in responding to those 7,000 events. 3.7% resulted in property damage or vandalism. So my point to you is, when people talk about America burning over the summer, there was a very interesting focused attempt to cover those incidents where those things were happening as opposed to places where they were not happening. I'll speak personally, you know, I used to be a Santa Monica police officer. 
at Ocean in Colorado near the Santa Monica Pier, protesters stood talking to the police that were there for the better part of a couple of hours. Four blocks away where the stores were being looted, that's what you saw on television. Mm. Yeah. So I want to be clear about what really happened over this summer when people say, well, you know, Black Lives Matter and Antifa and and, and let me be clear about this. I don't ever condone violence. I don't ever condone destruction. I'm an equal opportunity law enforcement person. I'm an equal opportunity counterterrorism person. However, the data is what it is. Unfortunately, the coverage, what are you going to cover? The officers and the protesters sitting next to each other or the person that's breaking into the sports store taking out five pairs of sneakers? There you have it. How do we move forward? I think the way we move forward is a couple things. Number one, if we want to talk about January 6th, they need to be prosecuted, identified and prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. We can even use the former president's executive order that he signed last summer about activities at government facilities. We can use his order. 10-year mandatory. You bet. I say that because January 6th is going to be a date that's going to live in infamy. They see that date as a trophy. The lack of prosecution will embolden and enhance the fact that they believe it was a huge success. I think the only reason that they have stood down since then is because of the National Guard presence we had at all 50 states in response to that. There's something to be said for deterrence. I think we have to have those conversations like we're having now. You know, the, the real tough part about this conversation is this. You have, and I saw some figures this morning. I watched a very interesting congressional hearing on violent extremism with some of my colleagues that were there, Brian Jenkins and <clears throat> Jonathan Greenblatt from ADL. And, but the point is this. You have arguably a significant percentage of people who believe in the former president and with that, some QAnon's conspiracy theories. Let's just say one to 2% of that number and we'll make it 250,000 people were ISIS adherents. What would we do? Holy cow. <laughs> well, that's where we are. Yeah. One to 2% are, your, are the people that are probably actionable in America perhaps that are in this extreme fringe. And we're acting like it's just the guy next door. We can't do that anymore. Right. And the reason we're here is because of the denial that America has had for decades about the fact that we can be as radical and we can be as radicalized as anyone else. And we kept thinking it's gotta be someone from another country, another religion, another ethnicity, another nationality. Americans don't do this. Well, yes, we do. And I teach all over the world. I happen to be, I've been teaching in Israel for 14 years. I teach at the University of Paris. I'll speak about Europe. They have the same homegrown challenges we have. The Charlie Hebdo attacks, although they were just jihadists, those guys were born in Paris. Right. The 7-7 attacks in London, the follow-on attack that was going to happen two weeks later, those Brits were born in London. They weren't immigrants. They weren't foreign fighters. They grew up there. We are no different. 
we've got to come to the realization that we are just as challenged as they are, and we've got to address it in some instances the same way that they're doing it. You brought up law enforcement, and I want to dig a lot deeper into that. Before we move on from the attack on the Capitol, have there been any revelations that we've learned over the last couple of weeks about how this happened? Um, or will it just really take a lot of time before we learn anything substantial? I, I think, I don't want to get ahead of the investigation. It does appear that there were factions of the rioters that were very organized and had a mission. Um, you saw on video some of the groups that went in. You know, I used to be on FBI SWAT, so I recognize those formations very well. People that go hands in. Hands on the shoulder. And hand on the shoulder. Um, some people had earpieces. Um, we're still trying to find out how the pipe bombs got placed. We're still trying to find out how people knew where to go. So I would say those are the only revelations we've made. The good news is if there's any, is the lack of sophistication by most people there not understanding when you walk into Capitol, <laughs> the IP address for your phone is automatically in a database somewhere if your phone is on. Um, the fact that I don't know why they thought they could post selfies doing things all over the place. The incredible support and cooperation of the American public in helping identify these folks. So the revelations to me are, we need to find out how organized this was. We need to also find out the level of complicity as it relates to the members of the con of Congress and also the members of law enforcement. Last question about this topic. As, as I mentioned before, you were very prescient for the prior months, if not years. Have there been any revelations so far that actually surprised you about all this? Great question. I'm going to disappoint everybody and say no. Mm. That's scary. That that is scary. No, I will say this. I did. I never anticipated a QAnon. I will say that. I, I mean, in all my wildest conspiracy theories, anti-government. I showed my class a video last week. I teach a course this summer on HVE on homegrown violent extremism. I showed them an entire video on the 9/11 conspiracy. And we talk about it. I lost friends on 9-11, so I'm always personally offended when I have people say to me it never happened or was a government plot. I never thought we'd have a movement where they would go so low as to suggest that school shootings were, were method actors. Yeah. Um, you know, almost the world is flat and gravity doesn't exist. I never thought we'd get there, but that's where we are. And to your point, Corey, earlier about, oh, I'm sorry, Ron, to your point about people in terms of education level and experience, I don't know if it's ignorance or something even more sinister that people believe what they do. You know, we've got a whole ideology now based on the fact that kids are being kidnapped. And, and, and what's really telling about this and, and troubling uh, how it almost feels like the people who are signing on wouldn't be part of it. I, I hate to tell you how much the QAnon conspiracy is attracting Jews, which seems antithetical to what's, what, what they talk about, but they are. So I, I did not see this part of it. 
the lead up to January 6th in terms of the movement based on the last four years was, was all but predictable. You know, in, in some ways that gives me reason to be hopeful. While it is scary, the fact that this isn't surprising to an expert in the field is good because then it's just a matter of the first step is admitting it. <laughs> you know. Thank you. And, and, and people said to me, what's the most important thing that this administration, the new administration has to do? I said, the president did it in his inauguration speech. He called it out. Yeah. That, you, Corey, you were so on target. Admitting it is a huge first step. Right. I'm very pessimistic, and I'll tell you why. Because you're Jewish. You, you wouldn't be <laughs> Jewish if you were a little bit abyssal, abyssal pessimistic. <laughs> That's probably a big piece of it. But, you know, for five years from the time Trump came down the golden escalator, um, you know, being from New York, being the same age as Trump, more or less, I've known this guy was a scumbag for 40 years. You know, I mean, he's a despicable human being, always has been. And for five years, I've been waiting for the emperor's new clothes moment. You know, Charlottesville came. I said, that's it. Everyone's eyes going to open up. They're going to see what a piece of garbage this man is. Didn't happen. There were several situations through his presidency. I mean, um, the whole Ukrainian thing, uh, you know, I mean, I, you know, uh, not calling Putin out on putting bounties on American soldiers. You know, oh, man. Over and over. January 6th came. For three days, I said, this is it. They finally figured out who this guy is. And less than a week went by before people started equivocating, walking back, uh, explaining. He didn't really. And I'm saying to myself, America's in big trouble. America's in big trouble. This is the Reichstag fire all over again, an American version of it. And they're blaming Antifa on it. And I saw it on TV in real time while it's, I mean, I'm very pessimistic. I, it's funny, we talked about, I was had a conversation with a with a buddy of mine this morning about the Reichstag fire and Hitler. Wow. I'm going to say this. I and we'll go back to race. As an African American, I can't be pessimistic. I I don't have that luxury and and what keeps me going are the things that my parents went through. I mean, they're veterans of the March on Washington in 63. I mean, that's, I always felt like the things that they had addressed, I wouldn't have to address as an adult. I was so wrong. Because of that, I stand on their shoulders now to say, we have got to keep doing what we do. We've got to keep fighting. And whatever worked in the 60s and 70s needs to come back. I mean, with all due respect, I got bust as a kid, one of five black kids to an all white school. All my friends were Jewish. I went to more bar mitzvahs and bas mitzvahs than I can tell you about. <laughs> but it was also a time where we stood shoulder to shoulder with Jews. That needs to come back. My, I work very closely with the ADL. I know those folks very, I mean, we, we're just partners. 
this is a time where we need to understand we are not the minority. And to your point about the new about President Biden not being as accommodating, perhaps as past administrations needs to take place. There are certain things like normalcy, decency, humanity, and empathy that need to be returned. And for those people who can't accept that, we don't have time for them. Yeah, yeah, and um, there are some of my, so I grew up very observantly Jewish, became a Christian about 20 years ago. My kids went to a Christian school. You know, we went to a very, um, what I thought was a theologically conservative church, but conservative had a lot more meanings than that. And I found that a lot of guys that I was going to church with and Bible studies with, they might not say it, but it was clear that they had uh, political and social priorities that trumped their theological convictions. So, you know, as I read my Bible, certain things jump out at me, you know, what, what you were just talking about, about civility and truth and, you know, being kind, you know, in the, in the Christian tradition, um, the fruit of the spirit, which is a lot of people know about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. These things are just virtues. And it's not just because I believe in the Bible, but if we talk about those things, these are universally accepted virtues. Um, and yet somehow anti-virtues are being celebrated. Uh, the, the only, the only, I will say this though, that some of my friends, uh, I have a really good friend. I'll probably be talking to him tonight. Um, who refers to himself as having regrettably voted for Trump. And he helps me understand not just how he got there um, in his decision-making, but also even how folks who are much more ardent, um, strident in their support of Trump can, can have gotten there. He has genuine concerns about the influence of the far left um, and what that might do to certain freedoms he enjoys whether that's a perception or a reality or, you know, he's legitimately concerned about that. Um, he has other policy concerns, uh, but the influence on our culture overall is a genuine concern of good people. Uh, so I think those conversations are worth uh, talking about, but it leads some to go further to a hatred of this large group of people that are generally categorized as the left, you know, and, and that, that sort of explains why they don't just, um, accept, but but cheer on the kind of behavior that we saw for the last four or five years from Trump. You know, I got to go back to something your dad said, and people don't like to hear this, but your dad is right on target. <laughs> so could you say that one more time? <laughs> people won't want to hear this, but he's right on target. We can't get away from race. And anytime you do, you're ignoring the elephant in the room. And the minute you say that to a white person, they go ballistic. Ron is right. He's absolutely right. So I say to people who are Trump supporters, I go, you don't get to tell me how great your stock market, your stock portfolio is doing and support a guy whose followers carry a swastika. I said, that doesn't work for me. You know, I have friends who are Trump supporters because he's the best president that Israel ever had. And arguably, he is. And my my response to them is, I don't want to get into the weeds with Israeli politics and Palestinians and all the rest of it, uh, because I'm a very strong Zionist, always have been. I give money to Israel. Uh, my point is, my friend, 
if I'm dealing with somebody who enjoys humiliating people, who's a serial liar, I don't care what they think about Israel. I don't care about their tax policy. I don't have to know anything else about them except they like to humiliate people and they're, they're a serial liar. And I don't get how you make this Faustian bargain, which is purely transactional. I agree. It's going to come to bite you on the ass eventually anyway. I mean. But to your point, I mean, it always, you know, it comes down to it more than anything else. It comes down to race, which is why you campaign on the first thing you do when you're in office is you just establish a Muslim ban. <laughs> yeah. So we, we, we've been talking for a while. We haven't even gotten to the, the law enforcement part. And, and I have a lot of questions <laughs> about that. Let me ask you a couple of key questions here. First of all, again, just to reestablish this, uh, Dr. Southers has a comprehensive background in, in law enforcement from working at the local level in Santa Monica, helping to train others at various levels, FBI, LA World Airports. We haven't even mentioned that, uh, Governor Schwarzenegger's administration. Um, one of, oh, I do want to ask you about this. One of the first sets of details that jumped out at me in the book was in the acknowledgments. You mentioned several very impressive names. Um, can you tell us about some of the folks you consider mentors in your field and how they influenced you? That's easy. The, the Probably the number one mentor other than my dad is Arnold Schwarzenegger. Wow. Um, Arnold and I have been friends many, many years. I have not made a professional decision career-wise without talking to him. And I mean, I'll give you, for instance, one that's not really significant. I'm in San Diego in the FBI and I had trained for world, you know, world gym and I was being sponsored by world gym and I was competing and they wanted to open a world gym in San Diego. And I said, Arnold, they want to open a world gym. I said, what do you think? He says, Errol, how many gyms do I own? I said, none. He said, that's a clue. <laughs> he says, so here's what you do. You go down, help them set it up, train there. Don't sign anything. I did. About 14 months later, I go to the gym in the morning and the doors are all chained up. They weren't paying the rent. Oh, wow. When they got sued, my name wasn't on anything. Right. So it's those kinds of things where you kind of have to, you know, but I will say uh, I have a couple of the others, Jim Davis, Jim's a retired Colonel uh, fraternity brother of mine in DC. Those two guys are just two people who uh, have just been incredible throughout my career. They've shown me some tough love when I didn't want to do certain things as in get another degree or go to a certain organization. They said, listen, you need to do this. And they've always been right. So yeah. I've been lucky to have them. That's great. As an African-American man, having experienced law enforcement at so many levels, what unique challenges did you face coming up the ranks? And what kind of evolution have you seen over your 40 years in the profession? I understand there's a culture that existed then and exists now. I'll have to ask officers today if it's worse. I'll give you a for instance of what I dealt with. It wasn't easy being a police officer with, an, with a degree from an Ivy League school because with that goes a presumption of arrogance on my part, which didn't happen. I was part of a crime impact team in Santa Monica 
And I'll just say, I knew who the, I jokingly used to call them the card carrying clan members were in my department. Hmm. When I left the crime impact team to go to the FBI and it was a big celebration for, uh, for me. And I we had a team picture of the team and there's seven officers and our Sergeant. And one of the guys on my team who I knew to be that way, I have this photo. It's going to go into a memoir I'm writing right now of the team. He wrote on there, good luck. See you at the next KKK investigation. Wow. So that's what I dealt with. Um, I will say this, that in the FBI, I was the only black agent of 175 agents in the San Diego division. And in four years of the bureau, several undercover operations, SWAT, I never experienced one minute of discrimination in the FBI. That's good. Wow. And then when I went to the LA airports police, I was assistant chief there. So you're not going to get a whole lot of flack when you got three stars on your collar. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I will say that um, I was there when I met Senator Obama. And that's another long story where I, talked to him, wound up becoming an advisor to his campaign and ultimately unnominated by him. But the point is when he got elected, we did have some officers at the airport police who weren't thrilled about that. And I had to um, adjust some attitudes along the way with reminding them, you may not like him, but he's the commander in chief now. And if that causes you some concern, perhaps you need to leave. So, you know, one of the things about police reform today, and we talk about policy, you know, the joke in law enforcement is that police departments eat policy for breakfast. <laughs> you can't change the department with the policy. You've got to change the culture. And that culture is ingrained. And with all due respect, when the FBI was investigating the Klan in the 60s, they found out that many of those guys in law enforcement were in the Klan. So little has changed in some instances, except they don't wear robes and hoods anymore. Wow. Yeah. When you got to the um, L.A. World Airports, it sounds like you were actively engaged in implementing some of those changes. What 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 were some of the changes that you were involved with and uh, what kinds of obstacles did you face? Well, I, I, I smile because I had a director in Jim Butts, who's now the, the mayor of Inglewood. And, and Jim was my, and he pretty much just let me. I had free reign over intelligence and Homeland Security. I had all the specialized details under my command. So I was spoiled as an assistant chief because everybody who got to me had to go through a selection process. So I had the best of the best. Canines, uh, emergency services unit, which was SWAT, dignitary protection, two different counterterrorism units. Um, one of the changes I was able to make is I sat on promotional boards. I'm so proud that 52% of my officers had college degrees. Many of them now I've seen in the last 10 years have come to USC and gotten graduate degrees. I, I convinced them, I said, you guys want to promote, you have got to increase your education. We gave four to $5,000 a year for tuition reimbursement. I told all my people, you want to go to college? I'll sign it. Let's go. We'll alter your work schedule so you can get educated. There's documented evidence that an increased education reduces the incidence of police abuse. Interestingly enough, California now is thinking about having a law where the officer's minimum age has to be somewhere between around 25. Average, the, the only, you can't come in the FBI until you're 23. The average age of a new agent at Quantico is 30. 
when you look at the number of instances where they have problems, they're almost zero. So there's something to be said about maturity and there's something to be said about education. So when I was at the airport, what I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. We're going to, we're going to, I was like my dad. I hammered them on education. I'd sit in promotionals and say, are you in any college classes now? And they'd say, no, I go, why not? And I wouldn't promote them. Mm. I have another suggestion for moving forward. My experience was if you bring people together who explicitly hate each other and put them in a situation, not just for one meeting, but over a period of time uh, where they get to know each other as individuals, they come out of that experience and it's very, very, very hard for them to um, keep nurturing that hatred. Um, I had that experience, strangely enough, with my own father and black high school kids. Um, And I had that experience working with gangs in New York City high schools. Uh, When I was an assistant principal in a school, I'm going to make this real short. Um, We had a gang problem. and I was brought in specifically to work on this gang problem in this particular school because I was working at the district office on it for the district generally. And what I, the first, one of the first things I did was I set up a council that I met with every single week of the leadership in all the ethnic gangs in the school. And the response I got initially was, you can't do that. You're going to have violence. You can't bring these people together because they're going to kill each other. And I said, no, no, I'm, I'm going to bring them together. I'm going to meet with them every single week. And I'm going to institute policies in the school based on the recommendations that we come up with in this group. I'm going to empower them. Um, And these white kids became best friends with these black kids and Crips started talking to to, to, to Bloods and, you know, Latin Kings. I mean, it became a, a situation where kids who were killing each other in their neighborhoods literally became friends in school. Um, and I've seen that happen with adults as well. It's hard to hate somebody that, you know, you have coffee with and have a bagel and a schmear with. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. One of uh, my buddy, uh, Samir Yadav, uh, he's a professor, you know, not, not too far north of here. And one of his key studies is the uh, religious roots of, of race, racism, uh, the Christian, some of the Christian roots of racism. And one of the stories that came up is that um, there is this project um, near one of the Palestinian settlements in Israel that brought Palestinians and Israelis together, and it was shit. <laughs> they had to build they had to build a sewer line together. <laughs> oh no! They had to figure out the the there they had a common problem, and it right. was how to take care of the shit. <laughs> Right. Oh, God. And that's they ended up becoming friends because they had a common project together. It was very no important kidding. to get rid of the crap. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, God. Yeah. So shit, shit can lead to peace. Yeah, uh, that's true. <laughs> what was that I used to say to you, Corey? Life is a shit sandwich. Life is a shit sandwich. And every day you got to take a bite. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of my counseling. Uh, I used to use that in counseling all the time. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. God. Um, I had a couple questions about some pressing uh, issues ties into your expertise and and all of your experience. One of the more adversarial pieces of pushback 
to the Black Lives Matter movement. And it sounds like it started as just a talking point. Now it seems like more of an ominous movement is Blue Lives Matter. So as a career law enforcement professional at all levels, what does the data say about police officers being shot in the line of duty? Well, what's interesting about that, if you want to talk about extremists, and I don't know what the latest study is, but we had a study, I remember vividly, it was between 2009 and 2016, where you had 80% of the police, 81% of the police officers killed by extremists were killed by right-wing extremists. What's this percentage? 81%. Wow. So I often tell people, by people, I mean law enforcement who are largely in my classes and courses, you need to understand these extremist movements are not your friend. They can wave the blue line, the thin blue line flag all they want. We saw what that meant on January 6th, didn't we? So I often have to caution them. I say, listen, when you're in uniform, you are the most visible representation of what they despise that they get to see every day. And that uniform doesn't matter what color you are in that uniform, that's all they need to know. And we found out on January 6th how true that was. So you've been in a position of authority over diverse forces, and now you have um, people in your classes that are in those positions. It sounds like it sounds like your prescription is not it's not a simple one. It's really at a cultural level. Yeah. Absolutely. You know. The problem is this, that when people hear Black Lives Matter, when someone says that, what they hear if they're not black is white lives don't. We live in this zero sum game today. Much like extremists where everything is absolute, no middle ground. They don't understand that Black Lives Matter means my life matters treat me like my life, my life matters. Instead, they hear blue lives don't matter, white lives don't matter, you're more important, and it goes down the tubes from there. That, yeah. is, the, that is the biggest part of the problem. Yeah. You know, that is something that I often have conversations with people about when they say, I say, listen, if you have to tell me you're not a racist, you're already off to a bad start. <laughs> And I said, and you, if you have to bring a weapon with you to emphasize your point, you're standing on shaky ground. And then I get them really irritated when I say to them, if you need an assault rifle to protect your home, you might want to rethink your living situation. And, and then when they've had enough, I say, and by the way, I'm one of those guys who skews the average of guns per home. <laughs> so don't think I don't understand. Right. But it, those are the kinds of, and again, I'm, I'm giving your dad sunshine and kudos here. <laughs> those are the conversations we need to have. And see, I don't get the pushback that others get because I say, I'm a person of color. I've been in several uniforms and I know what it's like. So they can't say you to me, you don't understand. Because I yeah. do. Yeah. I wrote my first article that I wrote after they started the protests and defund the police. I write, by the way, for USA Today, I'm a contributing editor to the opinion section. I wrote an article that said, don't defund the police, and I explained why. I was gonna ask you about that because I, I, 
I've heard other explanations of the philosophy that undergirds the messaging. I had a bigger problem with the messaging more so than the um, some of the actual programs, one of which is what was happening in our, our home state um, in Camden, New Jersey. That was an actual living example of, uh, could you tell us about, first of all, <laughs> I'm assuming you don't necessarily like the messaging, but there are some reforms that you're behind. So let me tell you why the messaging works. Person of color gets killed, protests. We need more training, law enforcement. Person of color gets killed, protests. We need more training. Person of color gets killed, defund the police. Oh, hold on, let's have a conversation. Okay, yeah. now we're talking about your budget. Now we have your attention and it worked. Mm. Now we can have a conversation about what that really means. Reallocating resources, triaging calls for service where it doesn't require a stranger, a stranger with a firearm showing up. Talking about a greater investment in some community programs. But it, they had to say, defund the police before the agencies were willing to say, as that incredible sheriff who spoke at George Floyd's memorial said, we need to say the six words, we are part of the problem. Mm. It wasn't until they said defund the police that agencies were starting to say, we are part of the problem. Right, right. And for those who are just listening, uh, Dr. Southers is sitting right in front of a banner for Lewis. Um, so he, he's definitely a part of finding solutions. Could you tell us, number one, what does Lewis, L-E-W-I-S, stand for and uh, the problem that it's meant to address? Well, thank you, Corey. It's named after John Lewis. Um, and I come from law enforcement and we live in a world of acronyms. I have friends who speak in acronym paragraphs. Lewis create. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we took Representative Lewis's last name and it stands for the Law Enforcement Work Inquiry System. It is a national database for police officers that have been fired or resigned in lieu of misconduct. I am delighted to say that we have the support of community stakeholders across the country. We have the support, obviously, of academicians, especially from my university at USC. We have the support of law enforcement. I have two different associations of law enforcement that are going to be our pilot group. And I'm delighted to say, believe it or not, we have bipartisan legislative support for this effort. And we did a survey several months ago asking, would you support a national database for officers fired for misconduct? Over, actually overall, 80% said yes, 74% Republicans, 76% independents, and 90% Democrats. So we stand on solid ground with, with what we believe is a first start. With all due respect, you can't change the culture if the integrity of the organization and the system is compromised by what I call the human element, which is its personnel. Yeah. And we've got to take care of that. I have several good friends who are in law enforcement and I hear something similar to when my parents were in education and dad, you, you can attest to this. I, my, my dad would say, every school that I've been to, everybody knows who the bad teachers are. 
uh, my friends who are police officers, um, they'll say something very, so everybody knows who the bad cops are, but there are certain um, institutional obstacles that there's only so much that you can do. Corey, I got to tell you this story. There's a poster child whose name I'm not going to mention, who's a New Jersey officer. He is 31 years old. He is on his ninth department. Oh, man. He has been fired by three. I will only say that he was at Camden briefly. Mm -hmm. You don't know who he is because he hasn't killed anybody yet. Why is he still out there? That's a that's a eerie word to hear yet. Yet. Wow. New Jersey, like California, is one of five states in the country that when you get fired, you keep your certification. We had agencies during the summer social injustice protests that were advertising, if you got fired somewhere else, come and work for us. Mm. Wow. You know, when I was working, I, um, I blessed the UFT, the teachers union, because the other reason that I was able to retire at 57 and with a really good pension. <laughs> However, they protected the most incompetent, destructive people who never should have been allowed to walk into a school building the second day that they walked in and they protected them, you know? And just like you said, what was what was the worst thing that happened to a teacher who stole, who said racist things to kids, who did all the things that a textbook about terrible things, they get bounced to another school. Yep. Yeah. That was it. And to Corey's point, if it's like a bully in school. If you go to a police department and say, who are your problem officers? They don't have to think about it. Right. Everybody knows who it is. But I have friends who are chiefs, and I can tell you having been a chief, it takes almost an act of Congress to fire somebody. And 20% of them get reinstated with back pay. Yeah. So I will say this, anybody who goes into the Lewis Registry, if they do get reinstated, we have a redress system. We're gonna have a community advisory board. We will not make these decisions in a vacuum. We will take that person out of the system, uh, same as they're put into the system. But the time has come where they need to find another profession. Yeah. Uh, since we're talking about it, how can folks find out more about um, the Lewis Registry? Thank you. Um, I'm at the Safe Communities Institute at the University of Southern California. So they should just put in sci.usc.edu. That'll take them to our homepage. They'll see the link for Lewis and all the other incredible work that we do. So thank you. Uh, SCI. Say, say that one more time sci.usc.edu. sci.usc.edu. Um, I have a really serious question for you. I know we've covered, covered a lot of serious topics. Uh, but we're we're going to bring Errol back six or seven more times, right? It, well, I, like I said, this, this is like the, just the tip of the iceberg. I, I, have, I had to pare this down a few times, but this is a really uh, serious topic. Are you still rooting for the... New York teams. <laughs> you know, I got to tell you that, um, how should I say this? I'm a huge college football fan. Okay. I'm so assuming USC. Having, so having been at SC, affiliated with them for over 25 years, they are my team. We have a 
place on campus called Heritage Hall where all the Heismans are and all yeah. the. I have a gym in my home that's like Heritage Hall. I have footballs, jerseys, helmets, banners. So all that to say, when it comes to pro teams, my attitude is the same I have as a professor at USC. When they graduate, I let them go. Yeah. <laughs> because then, with all due respect, it's all about the contract. When they are at, in college, I have this incredible respect for college athletes because I still feel like it's pure. Yeah. And it's about the school. And after that, it's a business. So I let them go. Yeah. And I, I follow very few pro teams. I may follow individual athletes I've seen at USC, but I never follow a team because I just, I, I'm a college guy. Okay. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. So we don't got to get into the Mets, Yankees, Giants, Jets thing. That's all right. All right. We're, no, we'll stay, no. We, we got a better shot of staying friends that way. But uh, college football, I'll just say war damn eagles. So, all right. Uh, <laughs> uh, any questions for us? Well, the only question I would have and I would ask your audience is what they're going to do to be part of the solution. You know, I'm very I know your dad. I know you, you said, um, Ron, that you're better, a bit of a pessimist. What makes me hopeful are the numbers of people that voted this year. Yeah, right. OK, now I understand you had, you know, tens of millions who voted for Trump, but people voted. So when I think about people like John Lewis, who almost lost their lives or some did to vote, that makes me very hopeful. You know, we have got to understand that we are the democracy that most countries used to look up to because of things like that. And that's what gives me hope. When I see young people today, you know, I'm in a school of public policy, so many go on to become secretaries in the, in the president's cabinet and mayors and council members and administrators, I'm encouraged. And here's where I, I, I say I have a ray of hope. I'm encouraged because I think I'm amongst tomorrow's leaders and people that are going, out, going to go out and be part of that change. You know, I tell young people all the time, you want to see a change in law enforcement, become a police officer. That's why I did. So be part of that change. So that the question I would have for people who are listening or watching is what are you going to do to be part of the change? What are you going to be part of, what are you going to do to be part of the solution? And, and sit down and have a serious moment of reflection to assess how you're contributing to the greater good. You know, at the end of the day, I tell my students, no matter how well you do in my class or how well you do in academically or how well you do in your career, at the end of the day, it's all about you being a good human being. And I think that's where we need to get back to. Yeah. Well, one last thing along very much along those lines, you're involved with Parents for Peace. Could you tell us a little bit about that? I will. Um, and in fact, in fact, I'll tell you about two things. Number one is Life After Hate. And Life After Hate is an organization of former extremists from jihadists to skinheads and neo-Nazis. And we work to get people out of those movements. Um, we just got a big grant from the Department of Homeland Security to, to do some more work. I'm very proud of that. But I also work with Parents for Peace. And Parents for Peace is an international organization of parents who have had sons and daughters who have been recruited and radicalized and quite frankly, didn't know where to turn. So it's counseling services that we offer to help them engage 
in a holistic family way to first get them to disengage from the violence. If we can get a person to disengage from the violence, it's a success. They might not move, remove themselves from the ideology, but they don't want to hurt anybody. That's a success. If we get them to quote unquote de-radicalize or separate from the ideology, we win. I'm, I don't want to end this on a, on a bad, on a negative note because we've had such a great time and thank you for having me, but we're getting calls now from sons and daughters to us to say, my parents have been radicalized. And we're almost at a loss. Sons and daughters of people who were participating in protests since the election, sons and daughters of people who went to the Capitol. And so we're in, we're in a whole new area. This is new territory for us. Because the children are looking at their parents and saying, I, I can't live with them anymore. So Parents for Peace, again, go to our website for that. Check us out. Um, we're doing some really interesting things and we'd love to have people reach out to us and we do forums, um, counseling, publish work. It's great work. I really enjoy it. Yeah. And parents for peace is easy to find too. It's parents with the number four piece and Facebook presence online parents for number four peace.org parents for peace.org. And, uh, Dr. Errol Southers, this has been such an edifying couple hours. Uh, I, I can't, I can't thank you enough. Well, thank you. And I'll tell you the most fun part for me was talking to two guys from Jersey. I mean, that just, <laughs> I'm from Brooklyn. I'm not from Jersey. He, no, he's oh, from the old country. Enough. That's close <laughs> enough. I mean, yeah. That was just, I mean, that made my day. I, I enjoy it. I got to tell you, if I can, as an aside, before we go, there was a really incredible Homeland security committee meeting today, hearing today that I may have mentioned earlier during our conversation. And I know Benny Thompson, who's the chair. And, and, I, and I, I texted him after to say, wow, powerful panel. But what was really neat is I couldn't get over how many members of Congress were from New Jersey yeah. <laughs> that were on the committee. So I'm looking forward to have an opportunity to testify again, because it'll be like old home week for me. But thank you for everything that you do. Thank you for the opportunity to contribute. I do believe that we are going to turn the corner. I'm very optimistic, cautiously, but I am optimistic that America's gonna again, once, once again, be that shining beacon on the hill because people wanna be part of the solution. And I'm, I'm totally committed to that. And I really believe that that's gonna happen. Amen, amen. Thanks, Pops. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Souther. It's great to get to know you better. My pleasure, thank you. Good luck. Thanks. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. <laughs>